And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, before we start, I-, I just want to say that song, The Moment, that starts the podcast is by Toad the Wet Sprocket. They have a new album out that's killer. That song is on it, and uh, you should check the record out. And I'm really grateful to Toad, to Glenn, Dean, uh, Randy, and Todd for letting me use the song. Thanks, guys. My guest today is David Steinberg. If you don't know who he is, you should, uh, because he has been part of more culturally important, funny things than almost anybody. Uh, Steinberg was uh, part of Second City. He was part of the Smothers Brothers show. He was a guest on The Tonight Show more than like anybody except one other person. I think he was on there like 112 times or something like that, and he hosted it as a guest host 12 times. And, I mean, this was back when, you know, in the in the late 60s when comedy was really threatening to uh, to the government uh, and to religious leaders. When, when, you know, the culture was shifting, what David was a part of was deemed um, by a lot of people to be anti-American. And, and he was a Canadian, which probably made it in a, in a strange way even, even worse. Uh, the Smothers Brothers show which was really the height of, of counterculture. I mean, it's funny when you see this Mother's Brothers now, you can't imagine that to be the case, but but it was. And uh, David famously did a routine on that show that led to the canceling uh, of the show because n- neither the Smother's Brothers nor David would pull it uh, and would stop the routine, and they insisted on it, and eventually uh, the network canceled the show. Um, and And since that time, uh, David has become a director and a really important director who's uh, in television, who has directed many episodes of shows like Curve Your Enthusiasm, Seinfeld, Mad About You. Now he has his own interview show called Inside Comedy that's on its third season on Showtime. And there's a documentary called Quality Balls that's uh, running on Showtime, too. You should check all, all that stuff out. So I'm really excited he's here for those reasons, but uh, I have personal reasons, too. David and my father have been friends, uh, close friends since the 70s, maybe even the late 60s. But I mean, I certainly remember in the in the 70s. And when I was a kid, um, David was like a window into the most exciting and remarkable world. Uh, somehow through him, uh, I got the sense, even though I was a kid on Long Island living in out or out of the city, I got the sense that there was just an entirely different type of a person, an entirely different type of conversation uh, I could be a part of. I mean, I wouldn't have phrased it like there was a cultural conversation going on, but that's the feeling uh, that I had. And even when I was a kid, he would talk to me like a grown-up and try to bring me into that world. And we'll, I'm sure we'll, he and I will talk a bit more about that when he gets here. The only other thing you really need to know about David going in is, still to this day, the smartest, funniest people in the world all want to hang out with David Steinberg and have for 40 years. Uh, he'll be here soon. You know, I hope you'll see why. Hey, um, so David uh, is here. David, I did a little intro sure. before okay. you okay. got here. Oh, okay. Thanks for coming. My pleasure, Brian. Can you, we can see each other yep. fine. Yep. yep. Okay, good. So um, I, I just want to say at the beginning of this that I, I was talking about how um, when I was a kid, you were sort of like a, a window into a different 
world for me. Yes, I remember that. Which you were aware of at the time, right? I, I was. I was. And you were so interested in what I was doing that I took you wherever you wanted to go with me to everything. Well, well yeah, this is, what, this is what I was going to say. You know, you took me to the city to a comedy club for the first time I was ever in a comedy club. <laughs> you brought me to the set of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. <laughs> you brought me onto the first movie set I was ever on. And now I'm returning the favor by getting you to do a podcast. <laughs> it's in a little... How big would you say this room is? It's a, it's, it's a smallish room. We're, we're in, but you I don't mean, live here. This isn't your office. And you just don't only do the podcast. But you have been, I just want to say, to the mountaintop of show business. <laughs> to the very zenith. Yeah. Of the business of show, yeah. and now for for you're here. Yes, so thank you. <laughs> my, uh, it is my pleasure. Thank to you. Be you, with you. You knew if you would show me the Hollywood lights, <laughs> it would it would lead me <laughs> to this little room. Well, you've done pretty good. Well, um, now we were talking about your show, Inside Comedy. Yeah, and you said you never prepare. Never prepare. No, uh, because that means you have an agenda of some kind, and. The the comedian, the guest, he knows if it's a prepared question or if you're just talking. So if you're just talking, uh, whatever happens is so much more spontaneous and so much more fun. And I find that they like it more. They don't they don't know that I haven't prepared. So I won't even look at a bio. Actually, will you go and watch their work? Yeah. Yeah, if I don't know their work and I'm, I see them somewhere, I will absolutely do that. I mean, I, I went to see Louis C.K. Well, I actually used to watch Louis C.K. when he was at Largo, before anyone knew who he was. Was this before he started doing the more personal stuff, when his stuff was more a little bit more avant? Yeah, it, it was way out there. He always had the kid stuff from when I saw him. But he, he wasn't ever the opening act or the closing. He was one of four or five, not just comedians, but, you know, uh, music guys would come in and like that. But yeah, I, so, so I saw him. I saw him, as a matter of fact, a few times before. But yeah, I'll go anywhere to see anyone. But the conversation will be about whatever happens between us that moment. Right, and 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 you think it's it's for the guest to bring out the best in the guest? Yeah, yeah, it also helps yeah, me a lot because I wonder if it also has to do with <laughs> the lack of uh, organization and preparation that I would have about just about myself. Well, yeah, but I I, I wonder if it's also you know you are uh, you're such a great listener. Yeah, and it's like a real hallmark of who who you are. Yeah, uh, you're one of the most active like <laughs> listeners I've ever met. Yes, and uh, and it's weird because you know most. Tumblers, most storytellers, they're just waiting to tell a story. Yes. But you are somebody who is almost like a story lover more than a st <laughs> You just want a great story to be told. Absolutely. And if no one else can tell it, yeah, uh, you know, you'll tell it. You know, and also I learned something at Second City very early on, and that is, I think it was Jack Burns and I, and, and we did an improvisation, and the suggestion was the ecumenical council right. that was happening in Rome at the time. And Jack was, Jack Burns, very funny. He was George Carlin's partner uh, when they started out together. So Jack gave me this line, which was, and we put our coats up and we were walking around like we're priests and sprinkly. We sprinkled the audience. <laughs> right. I sprinkled like uh, goose, tatum, goose tatum behind my back, like the Harlem right, Globetrotter. Yeah, 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 sure. Sprinkling, sprinkly. Yeah. And he said, Father, do you ever think the that priests like us will... Will will have a chance to marry, 
And I improvised a line. I said, no, not in our lifetime, but certainly in the lifetime of our children and our grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> and we left. So that became a staple at Second City. And Jack Burns, who was the cutest man, he said, you always, you know, get the laugh because you, you do the funny line. I said, well, I came up with the funny line. I said, well, uh, we, let's reverse it. And you say the first line first, and I'll say the last line last. And I did. I said, do you ever think, well, and he said, yeah. And it got still as big a laugh as, as anything. Right. When I went into the bar, the guy said to me, God, you guys were so funny. Oh, great. You were just so funny. And I said, oh, thank you. And it was a lesson. It doesn't matter. If there's a good conversation going on, the listener is an active participant, and you don't have to be getting all the funny lines. You're happy to pass the ball. Absolutely. Get the assist. Absolutely. Like the great Knicks teams that you loved <laughs> I in the early for years. 70s. Yes. The Willis-Reed years. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's also tied into um, the, the idea. I had this thought walking over here that, um, that I bet you boredom is an emotion you hate. It is like on the very bottom. Yes, there. I, 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 you, any. There is no comedian I know that doesn't hate being bored or being bored by someone as a performer. Yeah, that that is the worst experience to have to be sitting in. Sometimes to go to a Broadway theater, yeah, be sitting in these tight seats, everyone you're close to everyone else, and you're caught there, and you and it, you just know this is lame and not going to work. Oh, it's this is that's, it's a disaster. It's disaster, dead, and yeah. you get that uh, you get that horrible, trapped yes. feeling. But but uh, but I wonder if the part of keeping the thing alive and not prepping, yes, it is keeps, the chance of failure yes. makes you n not bored. No, it's it, it keeps you awake and alive, and also it makes you a better listener. I mean, if you have nothing prepared and you're genuinely not prepared, your next question is going to come from whatever that person answers, because you don't have another question in mind. You have to be listening. You can't just decide, I'll ask this question, and that'll lead me to another question. You listen to what that person is saying, and something will come out, and then you're in it together. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's funny, you know, when when people look at like um, uh, Leno and they don't think he was a very good interviewer, it's because yeah. you never felt like he was connecting. Yes, well, because because the thing about Leno is he's a spectacular stand-up comedian, of course. So every time he's sitting there in that role on the Tonight Show, I mean, I, I saw him just recently, and he just blew away a whole bunch of comedians who were on, and he was better than all of them. And he, I, I think he just sometimes, he made a choice. You know, when, you, when you're doing comedy, it's better to be the crazy nephew than the avuncular uncle. You can't uh, yeah, win as the uncle. And I think he made a choice. This is a grown-up medium. He worshipped Carson and all of that. I have to do a mature version of myself. And I think somehow he... He sanded off the edges. He, yeah, he, he sanded off the edges, exactly. But then there's also that thing of the lack of con connection. That, <laughs> well, no, it's that, you, that you, when you would host the show, or even yeah. your show now, yeah. it seems like there's... There's, uh, you keep you lean in. You know, I was I I did do a bit of prep because uh, I just wanted to watch any of the ones that I sure, missed. Sure. But when someone starts telling something interesting, you know, you kind of like lean in, and you can see your eyes yes. get become incredibly alive, and you cut them so you know yeah. your eyes become alive. You're just rooting for the story. Yes. 
Yes. And also because you just want the sad, not for the audience even, you just want it. No, and I'm in awe of it. It's amazing. It's amazing that this person didn't know that and they tell me this. It's, it's great. It's just a, it's, it's as connecting as you could get. I mean, is that, do you think that's part of like what drove you into wanting to be around funny people to begin with? How did, well, I was, if you grow up in, Winnipeg, Canada. Yeah. You need a sense of humor. <laughs> sure. You know, they're, they're, it's, it's the coldest place anywhere. And uh, my family was very funny. My, bro- my, my older brother was very fishy, was his name. Was, if your name is fishy, you better be yeah. funny. You're not going to be a psychiatrist or a doctor. So he was very funny. And, uh, and so, so people around me were. And I was, I had a very lucky thing in that I was an accident. So my parents were finished parenting. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So this is the best thing that could have happened to me. I grew up so happy. They weren't no bo- discipline. They didn't bother me. They didn't discipline me. So long as I wasn't bothering them, they weren't bothering me. And I'd go to movies in the afternoon. I just had this this wonderful childhood. They, they, they were very religious people. They they were yeah, well, traditional Jews. Yeah, but mostly my dad had a little shul there in Winnipeg. Uh, in those days, you, you, there was a shul on every corner, practically, because they were all immigrants who came over from Russia, and you know, they moved us there. And then, and and how did you process the religion at a young age? Well, I wasn't uh, committed to it terribly. I wasn't rebellious about it, you know, because it did it make was, sense to you? Well, I didn't, you know, like uh, you know the the Sabbath, the Shabbat. I didn't keep it. My dad did. Uh, and so did my mother, but uh, it, they didn't bother me about it because they had my my brother and my sister that, who, who I was like 12 years younger than my siblings. That's how far away they were from the parenting mode. And the only thing that my father did that was great is he spoke to me in Hebrew ver- at a very early age, so I grasped another language. And at that time, he, Israel wasn't even a state when I was a kid. So that was that so was. So it gave you a, cul- a sense of cultural connection. Culture. I, I like the culture. I, I, I love the culture of uh, of Judaism in a way. I love it, and and especially since it involves comedians because they they all come from this culture. Yeah, I mean it's interesting the sort of um, balanced way that you're talking about it now. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, yes. it's so measured and so reasonable. Yeah, yes, yes I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but, but that's funny because, you know, um, the idea uh, of organized religion sort of animated a lot of your, cre- fueled yeah. your creative fire. Yeah. Now you're like, oh, they hardly cared. <laughs> I mean, I don't... I don't know. Is that <laughs> no, no? It, 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 no, it can't have been as lazy fair as <laughs> yeah, your sort of. Yes, it, it's not what my attitude is and was about the phoniness of it and how much of it has been the reason for most of the wars yeah. that we've ever had throughout. <laughs> yeah, life. I mean, yeah, yeah no. <laughs> it is. I'm taking a rather breezy, casual view <laughs> you, of it you today. Are, like, well, <laughs> yes, they believed a bit, and they yes. they usually casually say, "Well, they." I mean, anyone who's ever been in a home with parents, yeah. I mean, you you casually say. They kept the Sabbath, and I, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it couldn't have yes. been that yeah. simple. Yes. 
no, it's very far away from my sermons, which alienated uh, a, a world full of Jews everywhere. Well, yeah, and even later, those are the sermons you did on the Smothers Brothers, yeah, and, yeah. and they, uh, let's give yourself credit, they, you know, didn't only alienate the Jews. <laughs> yes. Right? I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. Threw the Smothers Brothers off the air. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it alienated Everybody. network presidents and Everybody. government officials. Yeah. Yeah. And... When I did it on the Smothers Brothers, uh, uh, they literally... I, I, I'll never forget it. Uh, I did it, and it went, you know, the audience laughed and thought it was good. And Tommy Smothers, who was very uh, sort of uh, rebellious in his own way, uh, and uh, and he and he walked me backstage like a, a week later when I came to do another show. Yeah. And he said, "I want to show you something." And he opened a door to a room, and in the room were like. Nothing but duffel bags, a room full with duffel bags. And I said, what's that? And he said, so gleefully and with such joy, he said, it's your hate mail. Oh, that's thousands awesome. Thousands and right. thousands. And it turned out to be the most, I, I guess it's a, a badge I could wear proudly, it's the most hate mail ever received by any network up to that point. And, uh, ever. Well, that's ever. An, no, that is, so, that is an incredible... <laughs> Uh, accomplishment because you know there were shows like Hee Haw. Yes, yes. So, there I mean, people had other, a lot of reason to be angry. A lot of reason to be pissed. Uh, yeah, a lot of reason to be pissed. Besides my, my B- besides your thing. Uh, but but um, you know, you did yeah. So you you did those those sermons then. Yeah. But even even later, I was you know I was I was watching. And by the way, those sermons I don't think you can find. Those Smothers Brothers ones on on YouTube. No, no. Well, the the first Smothers Brothers show. Yeah, there yeah, are two. Two. That that one is available. The second one. The is, one that got you thrown off the air. Yeah, they were no, they didn't show that. And you had started doing the sermons at Second City. Yes, I started them in Second City. I did an album called The Incredible Shrinking God, and even that was controversial because I had um, the Madonna and uh, the the baby Jesus on on the album, and uh, and, and and the caption read, "Notice my lips don't move." And, right. You know, it was the Lord God giveth, the Lord God is an Indian giver. I mean, it, it was uh, as as irreverent and as uh, sort of volatile well, as anything. Yes, but it, it's it's, it's interesting because um your even as you talk about it now like i was joking about it being yeah. a measured thing and you talk about how lenny bruce i know was sort of what inspired you or yeah. one of the things that made you want to do this absolutely but your comedy um might have been fueled by anger but you sort of funneled it through more of an absurdist and a kind exterior yeah well i i wasn't there to alienate the audience I was, this was my point of view. And one thing we learned at Second City, remember, Second City was just starting and we were founding Second City, is you, you live by your point of view. So have one and, and use it. And the other thing that Second City taught me is work from the top of your intelligence. Don't assume that the audience is dumber than you and you have to Brilliant. talk yeah. down to them. You give them what you give your best friend or whoever it is and just, just do that. That that, that lesson I, n- I never lost. And you've kept that. You still, when you're directing, when you're yes. thinking about new projects, you you never, even during the Bush administration, you weren't tempted to change your <laughs> your act. No, I thought I could probably run for office in the Bush administration. Yeah, you didn't feel you need to modify your act, though. No, to, not at all. Uh, even if they offered you a command performance, you would have done your top material. Absolutely. There's no way I knew how to do anything else, and it. And, 
It didn't matter to me. I mean, I oh, you wanted the largest audience always, but I just settled for the fact that I would never have that. But I well, but you ended up having a, a large audience. Maybe yeah. talk about why you ended you know stopped performing at a certain point, stopped sure. chasing it. Yeah. But I, um, I mean, I remember as a kid going to see you perform. Certainly up until like nine eighty two or eighty three. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can remember going to local clubs and yeah. and uh, seeing you, and you would always try to throw one thing in that was just for my family to yes. get. Yes. Which I always thought was kind. Yes. Talk about it at the expense of the rest of the audience. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I did find this old clip. Um of you talking about religion and i guess it was like on on uh was that rock and roll show the the midnight special in oh, the midnight 75 special. Yeah, right yeah, yeah and you said uh you said if uh i was thinking about what else i could do other than being a comedian mm -hmm. right and what's the line if 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 god came down and he were to say to me david steinberg yeah. right and then you stop and you go actually that would be enough that's if God even knew my name or knew that I was there, that would be enough. Plenty, yes. right? Yes. I can move on. Yeah. And and uh, and you did it with a smile and with a big stupid fake hand on because yes. you were doing a surrealist yes. sort of my Magritte moment. Yes, yes. you were doing right. a bit of a surrealistic yes. thing, playing to the top of the yeah, uh, and at the same time the bottom of the. It was yeah, great, yes. Because you know, it was like, uh, yeah, part Magritte, but let's be honest, part Gallagher. No, no question. No, it, was, it was on the Gallagher side. No, and just a both. Yeah. I had a, I had a big gorilla foot too that I used to talk to, You'd, and and he he never talked because we couldn't afford to have anyone talking. So I had to give an answer to him so you'd know what he said. <laughs> you had to throw it to your own your own yeah, voice. Yeah. <laughs> but but when I was so that made me think about all the sermons and we're talking about this yeah. in your childhood. Yeah. But I, I wonder, and you know, you did that routine with a big smile on your face, even though you were basically, even in 75, that was incredibly controversial material you yeah. were doing. Uh, how has the cultural shift and like the new atheism that's sort of sprouted up uh, affected you? Like, do you know, I mean, did, did you imagine that, that, that it would be able to be discussed in this way and that, yeah, you can still get people angry, but... I mean, did you think this conversation would exist? Yeah, but you know, you know what, Brian? I never guessed right about so many things. And I was certainly not a Nostradamus. I got everything wrong. When Even to this day, I do it. I, I think it's going to be this, and it's always that. Uh, historically, you can never know. Even in, in, in Judaism, let's say. So I was making fun of reform rabbis in, in the 60s because they were coming up. And reform rabbis were the most liberal version no, of Judaism, yes. as opposed to orthodox and con conservative, conservative. Which is in the middle, right. yeah. So it it reform that that was everything. So my I just went after reform rabbis and made them into dummies. You know, you know, I I did any version because they didn't have to study. They, they were they were um, they didn't have to study like orthodox. Yeah, they didn't have or, to go to yeshiva basically yeah, hardly. Yeah, yeah, and they, they didn't have to wear silly clothes. They could dress the way they wanted. So I, so they were a natural target for me. Uh, but at that time, Reform Judaism was happening. Now, that's the 60s. Now, Reform Judaism is diminishing to such a degree, and Orthodox Judaism is bigger than it's ever been. I mean, because the believers are becoming more fanatic because they're trying to hold, fanatical because they're trying to hold on, right? Probably. Yes, yes, you would think that, but but I'm just talking about the difference in the time. You would have bet that the liberal version of religion would have opened up much more. Remember, it was the late 60s and everything was, people were doing drugs and, you know, sex was, women had were liberated and the sex life was different and all of that. You would think 
that would be a natural for Reform Judaism. Instead, it made a sort of repressed version of that, and Orthodox Judaism sort of lasted. All I'm saying is that I guessed wrong, but it didn't matter. But what, what do you mean it didn't I, I'm not a historic anything. So well, I'm just a comedian. So, well, so all I have to do is make the audience laugh. Yeah, but is that really what you thought? All you had to do was make the audience laugh? I, I would like them to think a little bit. You know, I, I was very vain. I like them to like my clothes. I know that. But right. uh, I wasn't after bigger things other than challenging myself in every area of comedy that I possibly could. Really, that's what I was trying to do. But yes, so you would challenge yourself by picking... Yes. Difficult subject matter. Absolutely. All the time. Yeah. I mean, is that why you think you and Larry David have such a great <laughs> really? sort of creative relationship? Yeah. Well, he, it, 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 comedians above anyone, I think more people above anyone. Comedians bond not with the people they love, but with the people they hate together. Yes. You, so, you bond through hatred. It's like hatred. Mm -hmm. So Larry, David, and I think we know who the schmucks are and have talked. We, we don't even have to discuss it when we don't like someone. So he and I are very similar that way. And Larry's not the Larry David, as you know, of, of his show. He's like a writer. He's a comedy If he had to define himself, he's a comedy writer. And he's even saying comedian now because he's been doing Curb. But that's he, he, he lives for his writing, actually. And, and do you still consider yourself that as well? Uh, not as much as I used to be, but... Uh, being a comedian is about writing. It's about what you're thinking and how you can express these thoughts in a way that's original and not like anybody else. And whenever you think everything has been done before, you start to see a, a Louis C.K. or a Larry David or a Jerry Seinfeld or a Gilbert Gottfried, you know, different thumbprints for comedy that are unbelievable. And you, you, you never know where it's going to come from. And it still fires you up. Oh, I, I love it more than anything. Love watching it, love hearing it, love knowing about it, love how it affects me. And you got back up, what, two years ago to start doing it again? I did, yes. And, yeah. and how did that go? Well, it went, it went pretty good because I made an odd decision. You might think it's a lazy decision, and maybe it really is, but... <laughs> we may get back to the root of everything is the not preparing, just <laughs> yeah, laziness. It's, a, it's but... a little bit of that. No. I, always, I certainly had to do a lot. Nobody who makes sure their hair looks like you do could possibly <laughs> be lazy. That doesn't... <laughs> There's no, no that's way... True. That, no. That's true. I'm, I'm a little controlling about myself in some ways. No, but tell this. So, so I, so going on stage. The one thing I don't like is when people get older who are in the comedy business. They do geezer jokes. They talk about oh, social media. It's so tough. The tweeting. What is with this? What is with that? Right. It, it, it's to me, it's mother-in-law humor. It's it's the corniest it, thing that you could do. It's boring, and it's boring to me as well. Right, and to everyone, I think. So I thought. Well, what do I have? Is I said I thought I have a sort of rear view into the past in a way that no one has is because I've been around for so long. Yeah. So I decided to make what I was talking about just how I got from there to here, and uh, in a, funny you have, you have to laugh at it all the way through. Sure, of course. But once I gave myself that. That all the pressure went away. Then you could make it autobiographical and the world through your lens exactly. uh, as you've lived it. Correct. And that made it easier for you to get on stage because you hadn't really performed in a long while. How long had it been since you'd really oh, worked up an act? Oh, really? O over twenty-five years or something like what, that. What have? So I know the documentary is partially about this quality yes, balls, but yeah. but as you've now reflected on it, even post documentary, yes. Why do you think 
Why do you think you quit? Uh, well, I quit because I sensed a loneliness that was creeping in to, to how much you had to be on the road as a stand-up comedian. And in those days, there, well, you would never have an entourage as a comedian. They don't have it today either. Uh, but I would be in a place... Uh, I was in Cleveland, I, and, and I saw the, the front page of the entertainment section had a big picture of me and very flattering and 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 I was looking out the window because it was five o'clock yeah. and all the cars were going home to the suburbs to their houses and all that and I'm in this hotel room and this wonderful thing I don't know anyone in Cleveland it doesn't mean anything to me if other people aren't that I know aren't seeing it if you're not connected if, if, if there's not, not someone who you know you right. can connect with or right and I just thought and I'm by myself, and that's a very lonely thing. To, and I would by myself, even if I was uh, with a woman, married right. or not married. You're by yourself. You there's no. You don't want to put anyone else through it anyway. Yeah, who are you going to bring to that? You're, gonna, you're not yourself in the way that you are with them no, in that setting. And you can't talk to anyone because you're thinking about what you have to do and all of that. And I just, I just got tired. I thought it was. I thought this is unhealthy for me to be doing, and maybe I should not do it for a while. I never expected to find other things to do. Right. So it was really like ennui. Yeah, sure. It was. I, my version of ennui was Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's, yeah. For the other uh, people, uh, my friend Scott Rabb, is, if he's listening, will, who writes for Esquire and is like, everything's about Cleveland, would want to shoot us now. But I do agree. I understand yes. uh, uh, why you, it you, just you felt to, that way. I happen to remember it as Cleveland. Yeah. Whether it was Cleveland or not. I, I make it up no matter what. It could what. have been Milwaukee. <laughs> Same thing. Well, great. Now you got I did work in Milwaukee once for a summer festival. And I'm trying to think of the name of the group. It, oh, yeah. So it, it was outdoors, and I had a big audience come to see me, and there was another stage, and, you know, and that sometimes they would just, you would be finished, and they'd start the other show. And I just came out and said hello to the audience, you know, that came to see me. And as I was talking, they started the band in the next place, <laughs> and they said, and now the exciting music music of Spyro Gyra. Oh, no. <laughs> really? Like, yeah. uh, literally Spyro Gyra. They, the audience couldn't, under, couldn't hear a word I was saying. I had to wait for Spyro Gyra to stop, and then I would quickly do my act, quick, 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 and then they'd do another song, and uh, it was a disaster. I mean, that's jazz fusion. Yes. I mean, and loud, that's, electronic. That's it's loud. The noisiest you could get. Loud jazz. Fusion yeah. um, drowning out your punchlines. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can see why you. That's not on we. That's Spirogyra. Yeah, that that makes you want to stop what you're doing. But, but the outlet. Did you, were you when you quit? Were you aware like uh, this is sort of there's a permanence attached to this? No, I I, I didn't think of it in a, a permanent way. I just um, were you already directing. I I I started to direct almost about the same time. I think I had directed my first uh, Golden Girls. I think was the first thing I directed, and uh, and I uh, because it, directing was wide open to me because no one wanted to direct sitcoms. Sitcoms were were regarded as sort of the you know the last refuge that you go to. You should be in movies. You direct movies. But I had directed a film. I directed Paternity with Burt Reynolds, right. and that didn't do well. And uh, and I did a, another 
bad movie with uh, going with, going going berserk. Uh, that's the one you, I was on the, set. You, you were on the movie. set for that. Yeah. I, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which was the first time I was ever on a set and was mind-blowing to yeah. me. Was Tom LaSalle on the set? He yeah, sure it was, you was. And Tom LaSalle, yeah. yeah. He, yeah. he drove me there somehow. Yeah, you had asked him, you introduced us, and he drove me over. Yeah, you were sort of my protégés, both of you. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so going berserk, but what happened with going berserk is John, the Universal, John Candy became such a star without having done a movie, just with SCTV. Yeah. So Universal wanted to do a movie with him. So John Candy said, I'm going to write a film. And uh, and I want David Steinberg to direct it. And Universal wanted an overall deal with me. They're so, I still are well known as a comedian. They said, why not? And then, uh, but I said to Tom Mount, who ran Universal, I said, are you sure that John <laughs> is going to actually write the script that he says? Oh yeah, I know he's got it. He's got half of it. Anyway, the end of the story was there was no script, and they had to get John back within six weeks. Uh, because of SCTV. So a friend of mine, Dana Olson, and I, we wandered the, the, the sets at Universal. And when we saw an interesting set, we wrote a scene for it because we knew that was available. Oh. And we shot <laughs> you as a screenwriter. There's just no worse it, feeling. It, the worst, I mean, it is it, it's, the it's, desperate it, feeling of that. It's impossible. It's N impossible. No, I mean, it is like, uh, not to, not to, well, okay, we're going to go to the top of the. You know, it's like Sartre's No Exit. Exactly. Right. I mean, that feeling <laughs> yes. of there's just no, uh, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, no exit, which I know, I know yeah. you know, you know, you're in this situation where there's, there's no chance to feel any emotion except bilious, <laughs> frustrating <laughs> hatred. Yes. Mostly yes. ultimately directed towards yourself. Oh, absolutely. Because you don't, I didn't know what I was going to shoot the next I, I was a day ahead of myself, and that was it. But and John, you know, John, very he, you know, he was fun and funny. And if you look at it in little pieces as sketches, it's fine. But there's no, no directors movie there. are just torture. I mean, still, I wasn't even. Gonna, I mean, I, I, you have to explain it because it still kills you, <laughs> of right? Course, of it's course. miserable. Yeah, of your course. name is on it. It's on IMDb. <laughs> Not only that, the the title I had for it was Drums Over Malta, and they changed it to Going Berserk, That's which is okay. the worst title imaginable. So. Well, sometimes Hollywood is as bad as you imagine yeah. it to be. Yeah. Often but, it's not. Yeah, the fun of that was that John Candy lived in my guest house at the time. So he he was a spirit that was unbelievably, brilliantly funny all the time. Yeah, I wonder if people... I don't know that kids now... Know John Candy. ...really know no. how great... They know Stripes, maybe. Yes, they know Stripes. Maybe right. Uncle Buck. Yeah. Right, but they, I don't think... Because Bill lived... Bill Murray lived, yes. and Harold Ramis lived yes. until yes. recently. Yes. The, you know, the people of that generation yes. of SCTV, S yes. the Second City, they they know, but John, you have to be a rarefied young kid to yes. get it, which is a shame, Yeah. because like nobody was more naturally funny, I imagine. Just as funny as you could be. As funny in SCTV, and, you know, he started in a show I did in Canada, but he was all nonstop funny all day long. Wait, what did you... So, okay, hanging out with him must have been... That's great. You're great. telling stories, listening to stories. Yes. But what did you do with this energy uh, that you had as a, a writer and as someone who saw the world and processed it a certain way when you're... I get directing sitcoms is creatively satisfying, but what did you do with that piece of yourself? Well, you, well, you, that that's a good question. Your your question is, you're, when you're di directing is very separate from writing in television. Yeah. Uh but I was un I was dissatisfied with that. I didn't I didn't want to not be in the writing room if I'm going to direct these scenes anyway. So 
the reason that I got eventually successful as a director is because I was a writing director. In other words, you could give me the script and the showrunner wouldn't have to come to the set if I said this isn't working, that isn't working. I, w I was there in the writing room all the time. So I just gave myself a different avenue, not even just just to not be bored and not to be out of the creative. But, but I guess I'm wondering about the point of view question since you brought it up before. Yes. yes. Because you have such a strong point of view. Yeah. You've never not, right? Because we have the, the unique pleasure. I mean, I've really known you for yes. uh, a huge part of my life. Absolutely. A sm smaller part of you, you know, yeah. since I'm yes. 14, I think, and yeah. 13. And, um, and at some point, did you decide? And so I get the story and the romance of yeah. being sad and everything. But at some <laughs> point, yes. like, did you decide that, hey, when I was in my mid-30s, my point of view was really vital and mattered. And then did you have a moment where you weren't sure? Yeah, you're, you're asking me, did I miss, did I miss well, it? And I'm I, asking I, you, yeah, what made you say, like, I don't have to be somebody who, who, who um, deconstructs the world for people anymore? Well, you know, I did miss my point of view. And I missed having a point of view. And I, I miss being forced to have a point of view. One thing that stand-up comedy does is it makes you think. You, you have to... You have to you have to have a point of view and it's going to come out whether you like it or not. Right, because of course you do it now on your show. The way you now have built your life, yes. you have plenty of outlets, it seems to I me. I do, I do. Now now it's fine. But then you, that, that was a problem for me that it was a little on the passive side to just be directing... And lining up cameras, and, and even making jokes, and even fixing jokes in a script. Yeah, fixing jokes. Is, it's not the same thing as your whole soul coming out in front of you in a comic way. That's true. Yeah, and did I missed it. it. I didn't. You did. It. Yeah, I missed it all the way through it. But I didn't miss it because I was also getting. I, what I liked about directing is I liked the community. I liked. Sure. I, it, it's comedy after all. I never ever directed anything that wasn't funny. I mean, occasionally I would do it just you know. For to see if I could, but it was all about comedy. So I'm still in that world that that I loved. But did I miss that? Yeah, you know, directing. The, you know, they used to have movies in when the atom bomb on Los Alamos, and they would show you grabbing the the atom. You have to put your hands in these gloves, and these robotic things would grab the atom. That to me is like directing. <laughs> Stand up comedy is you. Grab the fing atom <laughs> in your hand, <laughs> and it's a jolt that goes through your whole system. So, yes, that's all that I did miss that. And I, so, I wonder if, like, when, yeah, you were missing that and you yeah. made this other choice, maybe to be responsible yeah. or to try yes. to make yourself happy <laughs> in some way. Yes, or, yes. Okay. But do you think that's why you built the social community? Like, the because you have dinners with, like, all these other comedians yes and well, you're always collecting stories and interesting that's true it's true i mean uh i just before i i i came to new york i had dinner with i put together larry david and marty short and alan's white bell and myself and we we had dinner and we were nothing but laughs all all evening long and basically about people we hate Right. But, <laughs> so that, yeah of course I mean, yeah. it's all about people you hate yeah but no i did I, it was i i i was I also couldn't get over the talent around me. I must say that, like the 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 comedy talent that I work with, 
They were unbelievable. I mean, you mean working on Mad About You or Seinfeld or yeah, Curb? Mad About You was spectacular. First of, course. of all, it's you, a gr- yeah, it was a great show. A great show, a great, well-written show. You've got Paul Reiser, you've got Helen Hunt. Uh, every cast member was great. And the writers were funny. So I was I was in that community very strong. No, and you kept yourself. And I mean, from a career standpoint, it's funny. By walking away, you obviously kept yourself much more relevant than many of your contemporaries. That's true. Right. That's true. I mean, Robert Klein was ahead of you. Yes. Older than you. Yes. You know, not, was not this, older than me, about the same age. Oh, I thought it was a couple of years. Was he you know, he at Second City before you? Or were you there before I him? I was there before him. Okay. Uh, but, but he somehow you know had this white hot moment. Yeah. And then he's a great, one of the greats of all time. Absolutely. But and there were many other guys like that. Yeah. Who sort of um, because that's what they had. It, it receded. Yeah. And you kept yourself in the mix with the funniest current people. Yes. Was I, there something conscious about that, or did that just no, happen? Luck, lucky, lucky that I liked being around these people, and I was in a position to do that. If, if Robert Klein had started to direct, he would be a great comedy director, and he would have had that feeling as well. But he stayed with stand-up much longer than I did, and uh, I just. Uh, I, I liked the comedy community. It was unbelievable. I mean, uh, it's it's brutal to write a sitcom. It's brutal to write anything, as you would know better than anyone. It takes forever. You're working till 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock yes. at night all the time. And you have to deliver a show every Friday. Yeah, so there's a certain kind of like um, uh, adrenalized pressure to that. Yeah, yeah. That you got off on. I liked uh, it. You know, similar in some way to the adrenaline. Yeah, it, yeah. It's still... It, it's, it's still a comedy gene that you're using but but i guess what i'm what what i'm what what's i'm kind of wondering about about it i'm not trying to stay in it but it's because the shows you did were these were great shows enormously yeah. successful shows but they weren't anywhere near the kind of um cultural cutting edge as what yeah. you were did before and i'm wondering if um if you got tired of being on the cutting edge, or you felt you didn't belong on the like, what made no. you? I, I I I'll tell you, Brian. I did have an advantage that has to be mentioned, and that is, so long as Carson was there, sure. I I you could go on television I had and be a funny. Platform almost yeah. every six weeks, five weeks, forever, and then whenever someone dropped out, he would call me, and I'd be I'd go that day. So and Letterman I, too, by the way. And I, mean, I remember you would come stay at our house and go do Letterman. Yes, I would do Letterman. So I did stay in the talk circuit as long as I could, but uh, but I still never stopped to do stand up because I, now I had this uh, directing career going, and I just followed that around. But let me tell you that the the pleasure of being on a set like. Bob Newhart. Sure. Oh, of course. Where Newhart say, who do you want to have lunch with today, Rickles or Dick Martin? What could be better than that? Yeah. Right. That that was nothing. I mean, nothing. Ecstasy. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure also because Newhart must have been a, a, yes. a comedian that you. Oh, I, I listened to him when I was at in the University of Chicago, wandering around there. I would turn on the radio, and Newhart would be on the radio. Well, and you know, you, it's funny, but people would never think. But if they go back and pull out the button-down Bob Newhart, oh, spectacular. It's still funny. About as funny uh, a 50 minutes or whatever it is yeah. as you could want to have. Absolutely. It just takes a second to kind of orient yourself to what the world was like then. Yes. And it even was for me because that album came out in the 50s. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I, I grew up in the 70s and yeah. I remember first hearing it and then realizing, wow, this yeah. guy's... Late late 50s, early 60s. That's when it happened. Yeah. That, yeah. Oh, this guy's, yeah. you know, brilliant. brilliant. So yeah. So you got to be in this community yeah. still, yeah. which was so, important to you. Yeah. That, that made all the difference. Yeah, earlier you said this thing about, um, but you know, your your, your hatred, your joint, you know, forged by 
shared yes, hatred. Yes, you bond by the people you hate. And it, it seems like the thing that you uh, you hate them. You love show business. I do. You love being around show business I people. I do. Yes. And yet, uh, pomposity drives you crazy. It, uh, it dri pretension and pomposity drive me nuts. Yes, I. I I, I could be shocking about a person I don't like. Even like on the Tonight Show, I would alienate people by saying something. Because that still strikes you. What is what what is it? This when someone thinks they're great, you can they they is it? I don't. I, I yeah. It's it's just maybe it's because almost all Canadians, if you if you're just looking from above down feel sort of pompous in a way. So I grew up with the sort of the pretension, Canadian pretensions and all of that. And I didn't want any part of that to but be... You, in you think Canadians have pretension? Or yeah, it, well, it's, it's a... It's, it's we're a, better than... Well, no, it's a civility. It's not a pretension. Yeah, because isn't it more like... You're right, um, it's not pretension. It's civility. They're very civil. They, are, they thank you. When you step on their toe, they thank you. They're, they're, and they're very... But uh, is it their pride and their goodness that bothers you? <laughs> <laughs> they, we are you, my wife when she is annoyed with me yeah. it's because she'll say you're so Canadian it's because I'm being too nice to someone yes too co overly kind because and, and she knows well because she knows what you're really thinking yeah, yeah she knows that's, that. the, yeah, that's the problem is yeah. Robin knows what's actually going on in your head absolutely <laughs> right. so well it's funny because on stage you're allowed to just be what a, you can say it right you gave yourself the yeah yeah, I, I, the the goal. I wasn't out there to alienate the audience. I wasn't, but I wasn't also out there to get the widest possible audience I could have had, if I had planned it a little differently. I wasn't after that. It's funny. Uh, this whole idea of you being uh, the polite or kind. Um, you, you know, people always talk about you as being this great dinner companion, right? <laughs> Everything you know that everyone wants to have dinner with you all the time. You're social. You're you're always invited to the yeah. coolest, greatest uh, places. Yeah. And at, at the risk, uh, you know, I know Canadians don't want to talk about it, but what do you think it is that makes you somebody that uh, all these people want to share stories with? Well, I I don't know. You know, I mean, certainly lately, you know, the uh, having a documentary on your the fact, yeah, you no humble normal person lets them do a documentary on their life. Right. <laughs> there has to be... Well, it could have been a reality show. So. <laughs> yes, it you could know. have been worse. Yeah. But there is some narcissistic gene that keeps on coming up. Not just the vanity of it, just being out there. And I really did not want to do this documentary. It, it, it has to do with that pomposity and self-aggrandizement and all of that. But um, but I, I let it happen because of oh, that's interesting. my wife wanting it. Larry David, oh, I'm so me, glad Larry you did Charles. it. You had to do yeah, it. Yeah, they 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 talked me into it, and and they and and the director smartly said you could have a final cut of this. So if there's something I didn't like, I could take it out. I didn't have to. Did do you that. use it? Uh, it Sometimes, <laughs> just in a mind, was it yeah, about stuff mind, that yeah. would have embarrassed you? Uh, no, not not that that would embarrass me. I didn't like the way I looked, maybe, which is always something. So, so that this, that's so funny. So this sort of like um, the the thing you hate about uh, in in pompous people, you're saying you think it's actually like something you're scared of in your probably. Yourself. Yeah, no question about it. The thing that you hate the most is what you fear in yourself. It's, what you fear you're going to be like these. Yeah. Canadians in the shul who think they're better than everybody exactly, else. Exactly. And some exactly. part of you thinks you're better, and so you hate them and you. Yeah, yes. Well, that's a perfect recipe to become a... Absolutely. A comic. I mean, so what's important to you now, like in your day-to-day -day life? What do you... Are you going to perform? Yeah, I'm going to perform 
more now than I did even in the last uh, two years or so. I, um, I'll probably go back to the La Jolla Playhouse where I started to develop these shows. Yeah. I, I did some shows at Bucks County. Uh, I'll start to take it around a little bit and do some co- concerts. I want to hear what I'm thinking about a little bit more on stage by putting myself out there. And uh, it's a privilege. Uh, uh, and also, it's just there, there's nothing as exciting as talking and telling your stories and hearing an audience respond with laughter. It's just well, Imagine. yeah. I mean, when you do your show, you, when you do your show, you can feel it's great. You have a group of people. My crew. Are, it's just a crew and and the producers. And you've allowed, you've given them freedom Absol- to laugh or don't laugh as Absolutely. you see fit. Yes. It's a great moment when one of your guests busts them up. It makes you, you yes. beam when the guests yes. uh, do that. Yeah. You love doing the show? Love it. Love doing the show. Uh, uh, I'm running out of Jews, actually. <laughs> right. No more people to but, interview. Yeah, people to interview. But well, it, if it ends yeah. after three, you've done a yeah, great done enough. thing. Absolutely. It'd be great if there were... I mean, I'd love it if there was a fourth season, yeah. but if not... Yeah, it, then just get, get, it in, get it on there somewhere to another network or syndication and something like that. Yeah. And you can still do different versions, yeah. live yeah. versions. Yeah. You've yeah. done a couple of live events with it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I did live with uh, Larry David and Town Hall and... Robin Williams and I went on tour together, you know. It's interesting, the, like Robin Williams is a brilliant stand-up comedian, but he hadn't done stand-up for a while. And he said, I, I just don't want to get out there by myself. I don't know where to work it out, where to go and all that. Will you come on stage and we'll just talk and whatever? And we did, and uh, he wouldn't know what I'm going to ask him and all that. And his that incredible, spontaneous, improvisational style of his was it's amazing to be sitting next to it where I know that he doesn't know what I'm going to ask him and that is the result and the audience went crazy for him. Oh, that must... You should do that. Have you thought about doing it again? Yeah, well, we we did it for, you right. know, 10, 15 cities and we might do, we might do it again. And, it seems the kind of thing you could do again in a, a yes, year's time. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, you know, I remember his first special, which, again, you, know, you wonder if people know if, if they haven't. Go find Robin's first. Oh, it's amazing. Especially it's one of the most blistering... Yeah. Hours, and yeah. it seems like it seems like he's had a, uh, in various ways, a difficult time, and that comedians somehow decided not to venerate him. Yeah, I think mm. he's past that at this point. But but um, you mean he's emotionally past it? Yeah, he's emotionally past it and culturally past it. You know, they if you see him, if you go see him live, you will everything that you thought about him in the past is still present in him. So for a while, he just lost that. But the interesting thing, Brian, about people like Robin Williams and what we were talking about earlier, it's not just me, but Robin Williams reveres the people who came before him. He would go to Jonathan Winters sure. in Santa Barbara, make sure he was okay. Richard Lewis would go there to bar- to Jonathan Winters, look after Phyllis Diller, these older comedians. I know a lot of the names aren't known to people. They're just an older generation, sometimes by two generations. And the comedians saw them, saw how great they were. They in- influenced them. And they love these people. And they are not just vocal about it. They put in the time. Uh, it's it's almost like jazz musicians in a way. There's a way in which you talk that isn't quite like anybody else. And, and I, I absolutely, but I think that do you not? I think that the young comedians now 
feel that way about the generation, about Richard Lewis and you. Yeah, yes, and yes. All, I mean, don't you feel yeah, it if I you do, walk I, into I, a... Yeah, I do feel it. I mean, it's... Uh, do you I, ever walk into the Comedy Cellar and go sit at the table? No, I, no, I, I, I don't do that. But Why? I don't know. I... I uh, I don't go out that much. Uh, you mean after dinner? Yeah, after dinner. I watch basketball and and, uh, and read a little bit. But uh, but I will go out if someone tells me you've got to see this person or that person, and and uh, and I just just for my own pleasure to go and see them. But the comedy world is yeah. The, I think those th that generation. It's like music. You know the the musicians. The, the older musicians are revered by the younger musicians. And if they're not, they're just not that good, the younger musicians. You have to take your influences and, and admit it. No, I, I think that's true. Uh, you know, when you... I love going to this. Now, have you performed at the cellar in the last few Have you go up on a comedy stage at a comedy club? No, I haven't gone to a comedy club. I, I, I mean, you I, mentioned that in the document. Yeah. Why? Um, just because, uh, you know, I'm, it, I, I don't want to go up against an audience anymore that doesn't know me at all they have to have some familiarity with me right so um, uh, and you think they wouldn't <clears throat> i can't imagine that they would <laughs> well it depends where where and how but i'm on stage i mean i i am out there for an hour and 20 30 minutes uh uh and it's very much in a uh, altered version of what i used to do it's it's but 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 you, you know my style better than anyone. I I didn't mind telling a long story with a punchline way at the end of it. Well, because you were, had the you have the unique ability to keep it engaging the yes. whole time. Yes, yes. Um, because it seems like you won't talk about anything or do anything that isn't still animating for you. Yes, it has to be some, alive yeah, somehow. Yeah, yeah. So you have to. What's what is my original point of view about what we're talking about? That's that is what it, what I want. Something that you wouldn't have heard from anyone, not just in comedy, just even in the the point of view. You know, when, when there's this this uh, other thing I, I heard you say uh, when you were young, which is that uh, growing up you believed in movies. Yes, movies more than anything else. Yeah, I believed that they were real. You believed in those people. Yes, I believed in those. I mean, in those characters, you believed yes. in Humphrey Bogart. Yes, I believed that that's that Sam Spade detective cool guy. That's how cool guys were. What do you believe in now? <laughs> that's a very hard question to answer. Well, I uh, it, it, without it being the the only answer to that would be corny. But I I believe in uh, in the. My friendships, my love of my wife, of course, all the things that you you would expect me to say, but they're real, and uh, and I and I sort of thankful and grateful for the fact that I'm still working in a business that I actually love working in. Uh, that I can't get over. So you still believe in the idea of uh, of following your curiosity, your oh, passion. If I stop that, there's no reason for me to do anything. Absolutely, that's everything. Right, yeah, well, when 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 young people ask about getting into this, that when they ask me, yeah, I uh, I constantly say, I just want to say, don't think about the career part of it. Think about what fascinates you. Absolutely. And are you, you do you still lead with that? Yeah, you can't go, you can't plan your career, but you can find out what you're passionate about and how you and put yourself on stage, even if it's anywhere, and do it. You know, right now. There, it, sort of comedy changed around Seinfeld. Uh, it went corporate somehow. You mean around the show Seinfeld? Around the show Seinfeld. Yeah, it went corporate. Before that, um, uh, if you if you were a comedian and you're 
um, your girlfriend brought you home and you she told her mother that he was a comedian. They yeah. say, oh my God, this is a disaster. You don't want to be with a comedian. It's the worst thing. Now, I can't walk down the street without someone saying, my kid's a comedian. Could you get him on Curb Your Enthusiasm? <laughs> right. You know, uh, I, I was saying this to Matt Lauer the other day. I said, comedians are the new doctors. They are the ideal People want to be in comedy because Larry David made a lot of money and Jerry Seinfeld made a lot of money and you're famous and... Uh, it's become like uh, an institution. An institution, yeah. Not a rebellious act. No. It's not rebellious at all to be a comedian anymore. It's rebellious to be a doctor. Speaking of, of rebellion, as I was walking up here to do this, uh, I was listening to my friend Elvis Mitchell's uh, radio show, his mm -hmm. podcast, Yeah. and he had uh, David Itzikoff on and they were talking about this, this book he wrote about Patty... Chayefsky, yes, yes, and told this. I'm wondering if you could tell the story of yes. what happened with Patty Chayefsky, maybe the greatest screenwriter ever lived. Yes, and you, and why don't you tell what happened? Well, it <clears throat> they didn't. I don't know if the if David Itzikoff was really a good writer, and, and Elvis. I know them both; they're both friends of mine. But he, I, I, he, David Itzikoff didn't tell the end of the story. It was uh, I was very anti Nixon. And I was performing, and Patty Shevsky hadn't seen me and was coming to see me and wanted to see what we were doing. And uh, Were you friends? Uh, yeah, we were friends. Okay. Yeah. And we used to eat at the Russian Tea Room. He And he, he worked in an office with Bob Fosse and another writer, Herb Gardner. They're, wow. An incredible group. And, I, and that was, they were my mentors, those guys. So Shevsky hadn't seen my new round of stuff, but... Everyone knew about it because it was so controversial. It was unbelievable. I was a place called Jimmy's on 57th or something like that. Um, and he, no, this was the foreign the first foreign correspondence dinner on the top of the Hilton. Really? Yeah, first one. So the audience is John Chancellor, press, certainly an audience that could take whatever I had to say about Nixon. They would be not against me. Where almost anywhere else I went, I polarized. Sure, these, are, far, these yeah. are foreigners. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, Patty comes to see me, and I'm doing my material, and I get into the Nixon stuff, and as I do the Nixon stuff, a guy starts to holler. He said, leave Nixon alone, you goddamn Maki. You're nothing but a Maki. And Maki is an arcane term for kike. So, right. Wow. So right. an anti just boom. But it's, uh, spewing horrible. this dog a horrible, horrible. Anti. And I guess because your dad taught you strange words, you knew what it I, meant. I knew everything. Yeah, you so, knew yeah. that's anti Semitic. But he was but he disrupted the act. So now everyone goes at but I was funny with him. I didn't you You, you kept going. Yeah. If you disrupted me, I will work you into it and embarrass you. I mean I was an improvisational guy, so Second City I handled him and <clears throat> and my friend Ziggy who was on the road with me kept on saying, It always sounds like the same guy. Anyway, so Everyone goes home, and Patty comes back and gives me a hug, and says, wow, the way you handled that guy, it was incredible. And we go in the elevator, and that guy is in the elevator with me and Patty. You, Patty, and how, what was Patty, was Patty a big guy, a small guy? Patty was not as small as I am, but a little bigger. Not, he's a writer, you wouldn't call him, you yeah. know. And what about the guy? And the guy was tall, was tall. And he had a, a fake date with him. And oh, he had a hooker with him? Yeah, no, a date. It was a woman, so it was, he would look like a couple. Great. But basically, he was hired there to come and heckle me. But Patty didn't know that. And Patty uh, saw this guy, and I didn't know I didn't know what the guy looked like. Whoa, 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 back up. What do you mean he was hired to I, heckle you? I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to get to that. So Patty took this guy, and he... I didn't know that he was the one who was heckling me. And he put him up against the wall, and he said... 
You call him a Maki, you call all of us Makis. He says, and incidentally, it's not Maki. The word is kike. And I said, I said, Patty, you're giving him a grammar lesson now? You're giving him a lesson in grammar? Who cares? And the guy was terrified, and Patty was smaller than him. And then when Patty and I walked out, I said, this has been going on. This is one way that the Nixon Dirty Tricks team was trying to stop me from do every time I went into Nixon anywhere, colleges, which were very liberal at the time, it was this guy or some other guy heckling me. He was like part of the rat squad? Yeah, yeah. The rat efforts? Yeah, yeah. He, he was in the Segretti Dirty Tricks. Right, the Donald Segretti yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But little Patty had the guy up against the wall. The guy was terrified. See, it was dangerous to do what you did back then. It was dangerous. Nixon was dangerous. For it, it was. I, I, you sort of felt it, but we know so much more now about how they were on everything. And I, I took it for granted that I'm on the Tonight Show. It's an election year, and I'm one of the only comedians just openly going at Nixon. And I thought, well, you know, I'm a comedian. They wouldn't bother with me, but they did. Do you, does some part of you like miss the the danger or are you happy that it's like miss that what you were doing was um, viewed by some as an act of sedition and as others by an act of ultimate patriotism? Like, well, it, it you know what, Brian, it wasn't even that. It was my point of view and it was not my point of view. It would have been your point of view and everyone that I knew, they would have had the same point of view about Nixon. And I, and that's where I lived in that community. But expressing the point of view yes. was a brave y yes, act. It, yeah, it was brave because you knew I was going to lose a lot of the audience. I never thought it would get to the point where a guy's going to be heckling me and paid money to do that by the Donald Segretti or whoever it was. And, uh, and back then you had this incredible group of collaborators. Right, one of the greatest groups of. I mean, just before that, when you were at Second City. Yeah, oh, unbe unbelievable! Second City was unbelievable. And did you have you found that again in little pockets? Like, is that part of what you found yes. when you were on Curb? Yes, and you were ex on... exactly. That's the, the Second City feeling I got in the directing again. Not not in the performing part of it, but just that it was a community, and and <clears throat> basically you're in the comedy world, which is. It's like examining a piece of Talmud. You have to be on logic and the illogic of things, and it's so mentally stimulating, it's unbelievable. And so lastly, in this, what you love to do now is which part? I still will still be directing. Yeah. I, I'll never give that up. I enjoy it. You, know, you shouldn't give it up. You're, you're great at and, it. And I learned how to do another thing, so I want to be want to exercise it. Definitely want to get out there to see what I'm thinking about this year, for sure. You know, push myself out there a little bit more than I have. Um, maybe get a presence in New York. I, I not not a Broadway presence, but some place. You know, get, get up here yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. actually get a little theater and yeah, start doing something. Be, only because it oh, gives you, you got to do that. Gives you a target. It, you know, if it feels like if I feel like it's going right, that's what I'll end up doing. Oh, that would hopefully, be great. Hopefully, yeah. And then, um, Les, I just want to say thanks to you because uh, you know you've answered my questions not just now, but really for, you know, like 35 years. Oh, it, it was, a you know, if Jews could have godchildren, you would have been mine, <laughs> well, no question about it. Thank you, man. Thanks okay. for all of it. And uh, I hope uh, I'll see you soon. Great. I know I will. Great. Right. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Uh, David, are you on Twitter? At David underscore Steinberg. Yeah, you see, that's why you don't make uh, jokes, of, like <laughs> Alter Cocker jokes about <laughs> social media. You're on it. You have it down. Only that. Thank you for listening to Grantland. 
to hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.